Welcome, everyone, to the I Am Vinyl podcast. I'm Pete LaRussa, and once again, I'm joined by Joey from the Rock Strikes 10 podcast. And just a few hours ago, I sent a message to Joey on Facebook Messenger, and I asked him if he wanted to jump on for a little while and discuss an album. And it's an album that I forgot to list on the last Vinylversary edition, so we did not cover it on that episode. So I thought, let's turn one of my mistakes into an episode and i think it's a good scenario for an episode because it's an album that's been discussed before that is a lengthy album that has been discussed before as could it have been a single lp maybe even a double lp but for the purposes of this episode i'm going to say could this album have been a single lp and if so i have the tracks that i would have chosen for it to be a single lp and then Joey and I are going to sequence the thing and play it on this episode. So without any further ado, I'm going to reveal the album as I have not told Joey. I wanted to make it a secret so he has no idea what album I'm about to show here. And here we go. Sandinista. Oh. All right. The Clash. Get out your glockenspiels and your uh, boomboxes. It's time for Sandinista. Did you say something? I say that with I say I say that with love too. Did you say way. something about a boombox? Oh, hey now! Oh, not that's that's something to be jealous of right there. I, you know, I wanted to just show this box set. I mean, for mainly the reason that it's one of my favorite box sets. It's just so well put together. That's a beautiful thing right there. Yeah. And you have the singles oh, on there too. Uh, yeah. There's everything. I think it's pretty much. Everything they, they recorded. Uh, did they, did they mercifully there. leave out Cut the Crap, or is that in there? Yeah, yeah. Cut the Crap is actually not a part of the box set. but Yeah, upgrade. It's worth more money now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, But I wanted to, to just show something from this box set, besides the awesome packaging of it itself. But yeah. all of the discs in the box set look like mini records. Ah, nice. So I thought that would be just uh, something for clash enthusiasts to appreciate and if you haven't decided to buy this box set yet and you still see it available buy it i that's the only thing i can really say is if you're a clash fan definitely buy it because it, it's worth it even if you have the regular cds like see i, I do have i got i have the legacy issues. yeah i have the legacy issues for yeah. sure and i've got i've even got the super black market and i've got uh live from here to eternity which is one of the great live albums ever don't oh, yeah. sleep on that one, people. That thing, worth it just for complete control. Oh, yeah. And, and straight to hell. Sing in tune, you bastards. <laughs> this is just one of the best moments in any live album. You can actually hear the guy singing off key. Mm -hmm. uh, there ain't no asylum. But while not even missing a beat, Joe, right between the verses, sing in tune, you bastard. <laughs> right there. Oh, it's just brilliant yeah okay, from here sorry. to eternity it does it does have the best live version of complete control on there i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more yeah all right joey so let's get into the basic facts about the oh yeah here real quick before, before we get into it i'm just going to be reading the paper while you do that so yeah from so, the original look at that i was gonna that's what i was just gonna ask you i said do you have an original pressing or, or not yeah okay Got the Three LPs, no skips, original, got the paper, the Armageddon times. Good times. 
So do, wow. does that original, does the original pressing, does it have the same labels as uh, the reissue here that I have, the 3LP 180 gram? I've got it on the Jackson's label. Got the Jackson label, all right. I was wondering yeah. about that because I had a feeling that these newer reissues were custom labels, but that's cool. Uh, yeah, this version also comes with the uh, Armageddon Times paper. So Sandinista was released 40 years ago on December 12th, 1980. So if we're talking back in December of 2020, we would be talking 40 years ago. The reissue that I just held up, the 3LP 180 gram edition, was released sometime in 2013. And the peak chart position for the album was number 24 on the Billboard Top 200 Albums chart and number 19 on the UK Albums chart. And that, that's, that's respectable considering there's no big hit on it. Oh, for sure, for sure. And it's a three album set. I mean, even though they charge for two, you know, that's still very impressive, I think. Was and, it they charge uh, for two or I thought that they fought to charge it, charge for one? They, they did fight to charge for one. I don't know if they got their way on that. I still don't, I even just recently watched uh, the documentary from Here to Eternity uh, and Oh, great, great it's document. a great documentary and and once again not talking anything about cut the crap because that's not a real clash album but the, the the things that a couple of things i wanted to know about it is it feels like you know as much as i love them it almost feels like the whole thing about sneaking in the second album and third albums you know like it almost seems like a bit because like they're printed up clearly especially for sandinista we'll stick with this is it's clearly printed that it's a three album set on the back so like who who's gonna miss that if you work for the record label i mean so i don't know but i i don't know if they got their way on the suggested retail price for sandinista i mean at the very least i hope they were able to you know charge for a double um especially if it's going to count as two sales you know because that's what double albums do i, I don't know but uh, the other thing is it's exactly a year after London Calling. I believe London Calling yeah. came out December 79. Yeah, it's like literally and almost a year. To do five records of material, original material for the most part, in with like, what, two, three cover songs uh, in the course of a year, that uh, they were just absolutely at their peak. I mean, I know the Combat Rock is the bigger hit and the first album is more uh, heralded overall, but man, this is their peak, 79, 80. And I like Joe Strummer said they pretty much wrote it, recorded it, and mixed it down in three weeks. It took a less than a month in New York City to do Sandinista. And he's like, I wouldn't even change it if I could, because it's just that moment in time. And it's a beautiful album for that reason. You know, obviously, it's not much that they left on the cutting room floor if they did it at all. It just sounds like a stream of consciousness. It almost sounds like flipping around a radio station. Probably, I had to imagine you were alive during that time in the city that they were recording in. Mm -hmm. um, if you had your radio under the bed sheet at night and you were flipping down the dial, it almost sounds like this is what you would hear just going up and down the dial. It's that varied. It's more varied than London Calling, probably to its commercial fault. But that's what it sounds like to me. There's even a bit where I think they recorded off of a radio station from that oh, area. Yeah. It's like a public, it's like one of those public, uh, like fundraising stations where like everybody gets their own hour or something. And there's this guy that's just kind of yakking on and on. And he's supposed to be pl probably playing some reggae music, judging by his accent. Yeah. Guy calls it up as we get some music playing, please. 
<laughs> and that almost could have been – I feel like that's one of them calling up. Like they got on the air. and Because yeah, who didn't tape themselves when they knew they were going to be on the radio? I did. I know you did. I, I like his reaction. He's like, oh, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the album is to me. It's almost like a concept album of like late night radio and you know like in a hip urban town you know so yeah i mean from from what i gather you know just from documentaries and i've, I've read i've read a few books like I, I couldn't recommend this book enough a ride of our own written by one of their major roadies johnny green and it seems like it's like what you said it's like stream of consciousness and they were in they were in the studio and for the most part, I think it was recorded in Jamaica. And they did, oh, they, did okay. they did a bunch of work in New York. Um, actually, oh, okay. Yeah they, yeah, they did some work in New York at the Power Station and Electric yeah. Lady. But yeah, Jamaica, they recorded in, in Wessex, Manchester. Okay. So yeah, I guess they, they simplified the story for the documentary, I guess, or something like that, because it's, you know, you only got so much time, I guess. But that's, that's cool to know. I need to read that book. Well, yeah, and it's like I said, from that book, from what I remember, I haven't read it in a long time, but I, it's, it's like stuck in my brain that, that that time while they were recording this album, it was, you know, wasn't easy. I mean, they, they, had to, they had to be careful, first of all, you know, dealing with Jamaica back then, the danger elements, you know, and you're, it's assumed that uh, you're Americans and you're, you're, you know, quote unquote rock stars and that must mean you have money. So, you know, they had to, they had to be really guarded during the recording sessions, but they were, it's like they were locked, they locked themselves in the studio and it's just anything they were coming up with, let's put it on tape. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah, it's pretty much like nothing was left on the cutting room floor and, and they, they just wanted to release all of it. And I, I yeah. think that's pretty much exactly what they did. And I think, like I said, I think they might have tried to fight for a single LP price, but it's probably more of what you said, that, you know, that the compromise was, okay, we'll sell it for a double album, but yes, we'll release it as a triple album. Yeah. So, so just to finish off on some facts and stats about the album, and we were discussing the whole thing about, you know, selling it as a, either a single album or selling it as a double album. The album sold over 500,000 copies in the U.S., so it is certified gold. You know, we could assume it probably sold a bit more ever since its original certification. Sure. And in the U.K., it's also gold with over 100,000 copies sold. And as you said, there weren't very many commercial singles released from the album. However, there were three singles. First one was The Call Up, released November 28th, 1980, followed by Hitsville, UK, released January 16th, 1981. And followed by probably the most known song on the record, The Magnificent Seven, released April 10th, 1981. And as far as how well the singles did, Mostly UK. The call-up peaked at number 40 on the UK charts. Police on My Back peaked at number 21 on the US mainstream rock tracks, which I, I find that to be pretty interesting. That's cool. That, I was yeah. going to say, like, it's a shame that Police on My Back wasn't a single. Yeah. But that's obviously just due to stations adding it, and someone heard it and was like, that's got to be a single. Like, the station's probably trying to get you know, beat the label to the punch almost and breaking it or something. So, but that's clearly a single. It's clearly an anthem. Uh, so yeah, good on whoever added that to their stations. Cause yeah. that, that, that's a bona fide hit. That I, I love that song. 
that's like right up there with complete control or Tommy gun or any of yeah. those, like just, you can't not move when you hear that song. I fully agree. Yeah. So then Hitsville UK peaked at number 56 on the UK charts. That kind of surprises me. I thought it would have done a little better over there. And, and I, I'm, yeah, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't even sound like a clash song, you know, it, it could be like a mix solo song or something like that. And that, or, you know, that's what it sounds like to me at least. Uh, but you, and you got the female singer on there. So it barely sounds like the clash. Right. Uh, I, I remember actually hearing it and uh, there's a, there was kind of a neat little European, a big indie film called millions uh, about 15 years ago. And they actually used that in the film. So I, I remember going, oh, that's really cool. I know that song. <laughs> so that's, a, that's rare. I wouldn't have even known that if the song yeah. was even used in anything. Yeah, it was cool. It was a, it was a f cool little sequence with these kids that come into a lot of money. So it's like the sequence of them throwing money around and stuff like that. It just works really well because it sounds like a little kid song almost. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, it actually fared a little bit better in the U.S. It peaked at number 53 on the U.S. mainstream rock tracks. That surprises me even more, actually. Rock tracks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who knows? You know, I that I, yeah, I've never heard that played to this day on any station. Uh, if, if I'm ever going to come across it, it would probably show up in first wave on Sirius, if I had to guess, or, you know, one of the punk channels, uh, Marky Ramon channel, something like that. But even then they might even be resistant. There's a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of, you know, that weird punk rock snobbery surrounding London Calling and Sandinista for sure. I, I know oh, punk yeah. rock people that hate Sandinista. So it's just, that's just how it is. Yeah. That's how it is. Oh, it is. <laughs> and lastly, the Magnificent Seven peaked at number 34 on the UK charts. Well, Radio in Clash was put out in between all this, wasn't it? Like, is it Radio Clash, like 81, 82? I feel like it's 81. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a standalone single, and they obviously came up with it after Santa Anista. But Magnificent Seven is a great bridge gap between that and This Is Radio Clash. They both have like tons of hip hop influence and just street urban influence. So yeah, it looks they should have like, double. They should have double A sided it. You know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that would have been a, a great double A side single. Yeah. So it looks like yeah, it looks like it peaked at number thirty four in nineteen eighty one on the UK charts. So probably sometime in April of 81. And then in 82, it peaked at number 21 on the U.S. Billboard Club Play singles. So that's a unique one. We've, we've never talked about the Club, Club Play singles chart before. Yeah. Well, like even all the way up until like the mid to late 80s, Billboard still had it the, as the black charts also. You remember, do you remember oh, seeing yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's uh, something that nobody talks about anymore, but... The fact that that was still called that at that yeah, point that was, is so was a thing, yeah. weird. That and I know that I know that because like Billboard magazine, I kind of learned how to read. Uh, I used to get free billboards at our house because uh, uh, of my dad, and uh, I just remember going, "Huh!" <laughs> like even at like four or five years old, I'm like, "That doesn't seem right." But uh, <laughs> all right, you know, and there was still the disco charts and yeah. Uh, you know, club, all that stuff. You were, Floor, as David Lee Roth would call it. So. You were a man ahead of his time at a very young age. 
advanced in terms of your, your mind. I learned how to spell mostly through MTV. I told you that, like all the big words, you know, like uh, from the from the IDs and stuff. So with, with me, it was looking at the back of the album covers, you know, so much. Which is yeah, like, oh yeah, everything. That's really yeah. I think helped me a lot. So yeah. yeah, I think I think that I don't think that's something that's talked about enough. You know, when uh, you get into music at such a young age, is you know how much it does help your development in, in yeah. terms of things like that when you're reading comprehension because you're looking at a cover and you're listening to the lyrics and you can you know you start to form you have oh that's that word that i'm hearing on the record so yeah that's that's a good point so you want to get into the tracks that i've chosen in this single lp scenario yeah go right ahead i'm interested to see how much uh, i lock up with you i have not made one in advance because this is a surprise but i'll definitely piggyback on anything i agree with for sure okay well, I went in order of how they appear on the record. So, like I said, it, it would probably be good if we sequence this together. And sure. right now, as I'm looking at it, it would probably make for a good single vinyl LP because the total running time is 49 minutes and 37 seconds. So Yeah, that, that would work as, you know, yeah. a little bit extended for its time. But, you know, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, but, but this recording is... is so well done that I think it would have translated on vinyl okay and would still sound good. So starting off, I have the Magnificent Seven. Naturally. And I got to note the vocalists because I think it does play into the sequencing eventually. So okay. yeah, so the first song is the Magnificent Seven with Joe Strummer on vocals. Mm -hmm. Second song, Hitsville UK. And as you said, there's a bunch of background vocalists and Mick Jones, Junko Partner, the vocal by Joe Strummer. One of my favorites on the record, Ivan Meets G.I. Joe, sung by Topper Hedden, the drummer. Nice. And that is followed by The Leader, which is sung by Joe Strummer. And you got to have a Paul Simonon track, The Crooked Beat, sung by Paul Simonon. Followed by Somebody Got Murdered, sung by Mick Jones. Followed by One More Time, sung by Joe Strummer. Nice. Followed by the amazing and incredible Police On My Back, vocal by Mick Jones. Followed by The Call Up, which was one of the singles. And that is the vocal by Joe Strummer. Mm -hmm. And then Washington Bullets, with the vocal yeah. by Joe Strummer, where the word Sandinista is literally sung in the song. Yeah. He said it. He said it. He said it. He said it. <laughs> the family guy joke. Yeah. <laughs> and closing, possibly, with another great song, Charlie Don't Surf, sung by okay. Mick Jones. I, I wish I could get into like a big fight with you, but uh, I mean, I would say like you obviously don't like side three at all. <laughs> <laughs> or at no, least it's not. No, you can it's do not. without it you can you it sounds like you can do without it at least and i totally get why one more dub isn't on there after one more time because oh. that could easily just fit on you know the super black market clash later on or something we would still get to hear it yeah so i totally get that even though i'm a huge dub guy love dub reggae but yeah i totally understand why it wouldn't work here on a on a single par down well i'm uh, also considering you know if you're let's say you're one of these fans whose mindset is this needs to be a clash album 
because you know that was sort of a, one of those arguments about this album you know as far as there it being too overbloated you know there's so much stuff on there that's you know quote unquote not it doesn't sound like the clash or it's not punk so yeah. I, I guess i was factoring that in mind and and also keeping in mind of a like a best of like if somebody was to t- was to ask me to make them a tape back in the day and they only had like a 60 minute tape and they said give me the best tracks from this record yeah sure i could have added two more songs right to, to yeah, make yeah. 60 minutes but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in, in that mindset uh i like most of the album there's not very many tracks that i don't like yeah and if you cut off the most clash sounding songs with my finger quotes in the air there it loses a lot of that nighttime thing it loses a lot of that vibe uh but i that being said i still love the songs that you chose i i was very surprised yet excited that junko partner was on there because you know that's uh one of the covers on there uh by the way anybody that is a fan of that song or just a fan of music in general go look up the louis jordan version of that song uh louis jordan the Tempany five such a cool sounding song it sounds like uh i mean it's definitely like cotton club type sounding stuff uh uh, it's just really cool uh that's my favorite version of the song like i got so into that version that i almost didn't recognize the clashes after a while but i'm just glad it's on there i'm glad it's on your list too i'm sure the easiest ones to cut were uh the rehash of career opportunities uh sound of the centers i would take off too because I feel like Sound of the Sinners was probably their most, like, dishonest in a way. You know, like, it's, like, almost like a joke. Like, I, I this is just a theory, but, like, oh, you have so many styles on London Calling, but you didn't do gospel. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, all right, you know, we'll, we could do that. I feel like it was a challenge put forth almost by somebody either in the band or close to them or some critic or something. Uh, but yeah, I'm just not into it. I, I don't have any gospel records in my record collection. That that song's probably closest it gets, for all I can tell. Me too. <laughs> Maybe like you know a couple of Aretha jams that I have here and there. Ray Charles, you know. I'm just looking at the track listing, and I don't see anything that I would just totally totally miss just offhand. Yeah. Like I said, my my favorite surprises on there. I love the fact that Washington Bullets is on there. There's something about that song. Great song. Um, yeah, and I love the call-up. Uh, that should have been a bigger hit, I think, because I think it's really infectious. Uh, kind of surprising know, when you consider, like, you know, songs like, like Rapture. Were, were yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, we're primed and ready for something like that, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it's cosmetic business, you know. Like, if you see the video and you just hear those sultry yeah. vocals, like, Debbie Harry singing that track and rapping on that track you that's probably the only way it could have happened at that time as much as purists probably hate the fact that the first real actual chart hit for hip-hop was done by a white girl from brooklyn uh even though like they were very close to that scene as well there was a big cross thing there with the with Fab Five Freddy and Blondie being the bridge gap characters in there and it's of course name checked in it but I just think that like just regular ass uh, snotty guys from the UK weren't gonna sell hip-hop to the masses so I guess that's why 
but it's it's really interesting how much hip-hop influence there is on certain tracks from that particular era and punk rock and i love i just love the fact that you know i it's obviously a real i'm getting into a real social science thing here but with what was going on in england at the time with the race wars and everything i like the fact that the most punk rock thing they could do was uh you know rebelling against their racist parents by embracing black culture basically starting ska bands with black uh, members in their bands and embracing reggae and dub reggae and ska music uh, you know and it, it stayed because it was it was a cool you know clash of styles but it just worked it's it's the Reese's peanut butter cup you know it's uh you know but I don't know where I'm heading with this but uh that that kind of stuff is all over Sandinista. I mean, Sandinista is the culmination of all of that. That's basically what I'm getting to is like, if you want to know how far the genre took it and never took it that far ever again, it's in this record for sure. Yeah, I totally 100% agree. And I had to choose Junko Partner. You know, we're talking about they recorded mostly in Jamaica. You got to have the song with that vibe. You got to get the vibe. (laughs) Get the vibe. Yeah. (laughs) Little dice clay there. (laughs) Yeah. After this record, I think they pretty much started to like a slow burnout with this record and then the touring cycle and. My timeline is a little fuzzy, but I think they did all those shows in New York City at, at Bond, all those nights. Yeah, there was. Row. Yeah, it was like two, three weeks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they talked now, about that a little bit in the doc, and that was. After I would love to track. know what the set list for those shows are. They they obviously mixed it up. There's oh, no yeah, way they yeah. didn't. They but to. I'd love to know that. I'd love to know how much uh, Sandinista is in those shows, like because these are songs that we don't hear live versions of. At least I haven't dug deep enough to hear a lot of live versions from this album. I'm assuming there's some obvious stuff. Obviously Magnificent Seven was on From Here to Eternity. I would think Police on My Back is a layup. Yes. But I can't imagine what else was played live. Call Up was probably played live. I think I've heard that like sped up a little bit. Man, I'd how do you play some of this stuff live, <laughs> like without having like, like a talking head stop making sense production behind it, you know, with like, where it just builds up to like, like, it's like parliament on stage, you know, it's like 40 people. What a film that would have been the oh, Sandinista uh, film. Yeah, I would love to have they should have they should have shot everything for that they should have let it beat it, you know, or making a pump. Uh, they should have definitely just filmed it as a project and then culminate it with the shows. Uh, that would be one of the best things ever. I mean, that that's a moment in music history. I think they just thought they were doing a lark, like, you know, no one's going to give a shit, you know, and they probably felt buried with, like, the purists at home for going that far, you know. You know, my my mom likes songs on London Calling. It's all over. This isn't my band anymore. So I, I, they were just probably just like, screw it. Just do this. Like, worst thing we could do is have a hit in America. Well, yeah. I mean, after London Calling, there was really no turning back. I mean, they did the first yeah. record, which, you know, you could do the air quotes, is the punk record. Then they did Give Him Enough Rope, which, you know, definitely still leaned on the punk side, but obviously it had the Sandy Perlman production, so it sounded more like a rock record. You know, yeah. it, on the production side, but yeah, definitely elements of punk musically. Then they release, you know, London Calling, which threw any of those original Clash fans for a loop. 
They probably alienated a lot of fans. And, you know, then they, they released this damn thing. I can only imagine, you know, being an original fan of The Clash back then, or if you were from England, and, you know, even if you were a New Yorker, you know, and you, you were into them from the first record or the first two records, you were probably like, what the hell are they doing? You yeah. Know? <laughs> oh, but, yeah, I can only imagine. Like, that's kind of why I like being – I sometimes I lament the time I was born in, you know, like, oh, I didn't get to see all the shows. I think about those things, too. Uh, yeah, and – I, at the same time, like I kind of like I kind of like where I am. Like yeah, me too. I've made I, I've made peace with it. I, I get to like like I feel like I get to like this record without peer pressure. I get to like the Bee Gees without falling out with my rock brethren. I, I get to like I get to like the Disco Stones records, and uh, I'm sure that was massively taboo, you know, at that point, you know. So I like being able to see it from both sides and being able to appreciate it out of the time it's in. Because I know a lot of guys that were like, you know, guys that are older than me that were in like high school in the 70s and you had to hate the Bee Gees in your clique, you know, but now they're like, I love the Bee Gees. And it's like, yeah, so this is why it's kind of a better time to be in in certain aspects. So I just don't like separatism of music. And obviously you, you can't be a separatist of music and and love a album like uh, Santa Anista. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> That's that's pretty much an impossibility, or you'd be a massive hypocrite. So, yeah, I mean, I went into this album hearing it for the very first time, probably around 1999, 2000. I mean, very yeah. very late that, in the game, but yeah, you know, that's friend, about me. Yeah, a friend yeah. of mine got me into the Clash beyond you know the few songs that I knew, and you know I was kicking myself in the ass afterwards, like. Why didn't I get into this band more earlier? You know, when I was a kid, obviously Rock the Casbah was all over the place. My yeah, should I stay or should I go? Yeah. yeah. My brother had the 45, so listen, I listened to it all the time. But the, the first time I heard Should I Stay or Should I Go was on Polka's on 45 by Weird Al. <laughs> not, e not even kidding. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, like, I, like I knew those songs and, you know, I, I heard like that The Magnificent Seven probably on the radio so because when i heard it years later i was like oh, i remember that song that was the clash holy shit so yeah exactly exactly yeah. so you know by that point i was over that you know that phase you go through where everything you listen to has to be metal or everything you listen to has to be hardcore you know everything you listen to has to be this so i was like you know now you know i like listening to pretty much you know the stuff i grew up listening to off the radio or from my, my hearing from my parents or my brother so when I got into The Clash, I was like, wow, I had no idea that they were, you know, this wide in terms of their musical scope. And, you know, this album was, was definitely like, you know, an experience to hear the first time. It certainly felt long the very first time I heard it, but, you know, the more times you listen to it, the more it, it, it doesn't tend to, to feel that way. It just feels like you're listening to, uh, you know, like a double album that's just a little bit longer. So. Yeah, I, I did not get it at all the first time I heard it. I was just like, hmm, you know, it, it, and probably for most people. But yeah, I, I bought it right after I got London Calling on CD. Like, I remember buying both of those at Best Buy because they would, those are the records that were on the, the little display, like the Lost Leaders, where they were just selling CDs at cost. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, right. I got a lot of cool CDs that way. I got the old, the old Sony pressing, the non-remastered versions of those first. Oh. Uh, but yeah, I remember I listened to it once and I probably barely made it through it. 
put it away for another few years and kind of re-listened to it when the remasters came out. By that, by the time those came out, I was I was ready for that album. My CNJ radio partner, Chris, my best friend, uh, he, I think at one time I was having him do a list of uh, his favorite songs from 1980. We did it on Rock Strikes 10, and uh, he actually he actually told me that uh, Santa Anista might be his favorite album of 1980. Hmm. So. Yeah, and he's another guy that appreciates most anything as long as it's good. So I, I like the fact that the album, you know, I think Joe Strummer will be proud of uh, how far it's come because he was pretty much, uh, he pretty much didn't make it into this century. Yeah. And I think he would be proud of the fact that, uh, you know, it's more appreciated now. And I think kind of like artists kind of almost want to be appreciated long after they're gone anyway, uh, in a sense. Uh and for whatever whatever failure that people might have given him as a sense of that when it came out, I think it's long gone at this point. So. Yeah, I think people are far more forgiving nowadays, I would say. Maybe even some of those old Clash purists, you know. Maybe yeah. some of them have gotten older and they've come to appreciate you know, things on the record a lot more than they did back then. Yeah. But, but Cut know, the Crap is still terrible. Oh, Cut the Crap is awful. I, I couldn't agree with you <laughs> anymore. I mean... There is a reason why they won't acknowledge the record in the sound system box set. People getting paid to listen to it didn't want to listen to it. <laughs> well, you know, you don't, you don't want to get into the whole story of what no. happened with yeah. that. Sounds like a yeah, Bernie no. Rhodes like album. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, but no, Santa, Santa Nisa is awesome. Uh, anybody that's still on the fence about it uh, should definitely give it a shot. I'm not saying you're dumb if you don't like it. Maybe it's not your cup of tea, but there's so much to be had in there like i said they even go gospel at one point uh i think the dub reggae influence is the strongest thing to take away from it that's a really cool genre if you're if you want to give yourself to something different that maybe you haven't gone down if you like that then go pick up everybody's seen it but most people don't have it if you ever see the trojan label box set that reggae label trojan uh their their box set that's like almost all dub and it's just great stuff. So if you want to kind of hear what they were listening to when they recorded this record, then there's some homework for everybody out there. So I, I wish that was on vinyl readily available. I'd buy the shit out of that. Uh, anyway. Before we get into the album itself, you know, it's crazy to even think, but I was saying before that, you know, they, they started to slowly burn out while recording and finishing this album, doing the subsequent shows and support for it. And then Combat Rock was also intended to be a double album originally before that whole idea was scrapped. So it just boggles the mind. Like it just a double album, then a triple album, then you were going to follow up on another double album. You know, maybe it would have been a little bit of overkill, you know, in hindsight, if, if you, if you yeah. think about it now, it might've been a bit of overkill. What do you think about that? Overkill. Uh, <laughs> Overkill. <laughs> uh, yeah, prob probably. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of pushing it too far. It's not like they had the audience like a Frank Zappa or something like that. I feel like, and that was another guy that battled with the labels constantly over yeah. how many records can I put out at once. I mean, the infamous leather eight-sided album that they still wouldn't put out, and. You know, so yeah, I, I think a lot of that was going on at the time. There was a lot of bands fighting their labels at this time, so I think that was just a quick shutdown. Was like, this around the time that Tom Petty was fighting for his record to be I was, priced? 
Yeah, I was going to say promises. that. That was about 81. That was about 81, I think, was Hard Promises. Hard so, promise. yeah, that makes total sense. So, yeah, it was, it was just kind of in the air, you know. Uh, so, yeah, and I think uh, nobody would say at this point that Combat Rock should have been a double album, I think. Uh, and honestly, I'm not – I like half of Combat Rock pretty well. Some of the other stuff on there is like, ah, yeah. So I don't know if I would have even enjoyed a double on that. It just depends on where the rest of it would have gone. Uh, yeah. Half of it's really strong. I, It's one of – you know, it's it's weird because, you know, of those initial five records, that's the one I put at the bottom. Not that it's really that bad. It's yes. just it's just the fifth best album they did. No, I, I, <laughs> I totally agree. I, I like Combat Rock, but yeah, if you have to pick the weakest album of, you know, those initial five before everything, you know, fell apart and, you know, yeah. they had to fire Topper. And I just think the drumming changes really affected this band more than most bands. Because Topper, yeah. Topper was the drummer for the Clash. Let that be yeah. known. From from one drummer to another, Topper headed. That was the drummer, the definitive drummer for the Clash. Nobody was ever gonna take that guy's place and do it better. And isn't that interesting that he is the Clash drummer? And then when he joined Hanoi Rocks to help fill in when Razzle got killed, uh, the band just couldn't make it work. They couldn't lock in with them. And that, really that yeah, that caused them to break up. You know, it's just like, like they okay. couldn't make that work with him, and he's got all the talent in the world, and could write songs here and there. It's just, uh, it was meant to be that yeah. he was the the drummer for that band, and I totally under yeah. It's usually drummers are so replaceable. I hate, sorry, but there's there's few bands that could say that. I mean, like some of the best bands of all time did replace their drummers and they did fine. Sabbath is a good example of that. ACDC is a great example of that. I mean, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> you just, know, it, you know, Terry Chimes was one of their original drummers. And then when they brought in Terry Chimes to replace Topper Headed, you know, just listen to the live at live at Shea stadium. Listen to that record or listen to the stuff on from here to eternity. Uh, yeah. You know, Terry Chimes playing rock the Casbah. You know, it's got like no vibe and topper wrote that song so yeah you know, yeah that factor too but you know it's just that vibe that he had on the drums is just irreplaceable you know yeah so why don't we get into discussing the track sequence and then we'll come back really quick and then play the record and then we'll close out the show all right we're back after talking about the tracks that I've chosen to play from the record. And we've discussed a running sequence order. And just wanted to mention too, we, we were talking about the cover songs that are on this record. And one of the tracks that we've chosen, Police On My Back, is that not one of those cover songs that was written by Eddie Grant years and years before Electric Avenue or a group that he was in at the time? Yeah, I just wanted I, to I point believe... that out. Yeah, I believe so, actually. So here's the tracks that I've chosen to play from my 3LP 180-gram edition. And I've discussed with Joey track sequence. And it's going to go like this. So side A is going to begin with The Magnificent Seven, followed by Hitsville UK, followed by Junko Partner, followed by Ivan Meets G.I. Joe, followed by The Leader, and ending side A with the crooked beat. 
and side yeah, and, and, the, and the run out the run out groove is a loop of you peeing on side three <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh wow i just did that for this i just wanted to appeal to the side three fans you know so just villainizing you i got nothing to say there <laughs> i can only just laugh and then side b is going to begin with police on my back followed by one more time and then somebody got murdered followed by charlie don't surf followed by the call-up and ending the album with Washington Bullets. So, Joey, if you want to explain some of the rationale behind these decisions, the floor is yours. Well, my, uh, my Gene Simmons-style executive producing uh, pretty much only dictated that, of course, you know, you got to go with the original opener, but I insisted that Side 2 open up with police on my back, which uh, we had to finagle some stuff around to get that to happen. And I said, you know, Charlie Don't Surf is fine, but it's not a closer. So it was down to either the call-up or Washington Bullets. Uh, either one of those, I think, would... Uh, it's a good one-two punch anyway, I think, to end the record off. So Washington Bullets, to me, it's like a cool-down, but I kind of... I do like it as an outro, so I would I think that's a cool way to go. So if you just had to make it one album that would fit on an album of that time, 50 Minutes... I think this is pretty good. I mean, some people will nitpick it, but you know, that's your own opinion and that's cool too. If you have your own version of uh, yeah. the, the one album version, put it in the comments. Yeah, you know, we're not going to we're not going to fight. We just uh, we like all opinions, but that's our opinion. I think it's a, I think it's a cool record. That's you know, kids today they like making the playlists. I'm I'm no different honestly. I just wanted to say it that way, but you know, Make that, and uh, you can listen to the audio version of this episode, and you'll hear it in this order. I think it's really cool. All right, so let's get to it right now. Here is the official I Am Vinyl podcast version, the single LP of The Clash, Sandinista. Sandinista. You're listening to WBAI in New York, and this program is Labrish. My name is Hapja Salassi, and we're speaking with Baba... Or maybe Ras Babo. Can I give a message? Hello? Go ahead, man. Yeah, I'd just like to say, um, let's have some music now, huh? Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you.
Phantom secret secretly fled. Have the boys found the leak yet? Mohill set the wheel in motion. Downfall picks up locomotion. On stepping in and out of that crooked, crooked beat. One by one they come on down from the tower blocks of my hometown. Stepping with the rhythm of a musical beat, drowning at the pressures of the crooked street. Cookie, 
Afghan rebel that the Moscow bullets missed Ask him what he thinks of voting communist Ask the Dalai Lama in the hills of Tibet How many monks did the Chinese get In a war-torn swamp stopping him mercenary Check the British bullets in his armory our version of The Clash's Sandinista as a single LP version as chosen by myself and Joey. And so we hope you enjoyed listening to that. And also I, I noted this book earlier, right of our own. I definitely recommend that if you want a good story about The Clash from the perspective of one of their roadies, definitely get this book. Definitely goes into a lot about Sandinista as well as pretty much all the albums. And I just also wanted to note this book. Oh, yeah, I've got that. Yeah, that's a good one. This is really good. This has a lot of the same stories that are in a riot of our own, but just, you know, much more expanded and tons of pictures and sure. just just great. So if, if any of these books are still available and you can find them and you want more information about The Clash and these albums, definitely, definitely check them out. So it's just something yeah. I wanted to know. If you like your picture, if you... Yeah, if you like your pictures to move, then check out From Here to Eternity, the, the Clash documentary. Oh, yeah. Good footage in there. Yeah, 100% agree. So why don't we get to the outro and give some love to our other shows here at cnjradio.com. So, Joey, if you don't mind, take it away. My show, Rock Strikes 10. 10 songs, no more, no less, always a different theme. Uh, and even if I do one of those crazy countdown shows, it's always 10 songs per episode. Get you in and out of there in about an hour or so. And there is the Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions featuring Randy Brown, a true alternative. Of course, the flagship of CNJ Radio is the Wrestling House Show, the longest running show on CNJ, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. 
talk about new stuff, old stuff, Last Theater with Chris. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of good franchise reviews on there of different uh, horror movie franchises. Real deep dives, so check that out. Uh, Talking Rock with myself and Mark Striegel from Talking Metal, where it's kind of an offshoot of both Rock Strikes 10 and Talking Metal. We just recorded an episode today, actually. It's my second Zoom of the day. Uh, so nice. we talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I do a little rant on one of my favorite artists, on something that I didn't dig that they did recently. So there's a little teaser for you. And of course, the guy right here on the other end, I am vinyl with the great Pete LaRusso and... You know, I feel like I should be hearing the uh, KRP outro, but, uh, you know, listen to I Am Vinyl. You're watching it now, but go listen to it also because bonus music. Yes. That way we don't get kicked off of YouTube. Good point. Well, Joey, thank you once again for joining me here. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode. And we will see you next time right here at cnjradio.com. And Joey, I'll be calling you back in an hour. Back! Get it? Uh, uh. <laughs>